This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. There's a lot of times pastors are filling in the gaps for people that the Holy Spirit has equipped with a spiritual gift to go do. Let them do it. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to the Church Lobby Conversations on Faith and Ministry. My guest in this episode is Josh Taylor, and we'll be talking about how churches can stop burning out pastors. Josh is a pastor in Georgia, and he's the author of A Preach Well Church, How Churches Can Stop Burning Out Pastors. In this episode, Josh and I talk about what causes ministry stress and some simple biblical answers to relieving that stress, namely doing the two primary tasks that pastors are called to do, preaching and prayer. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and some practical takeaways. Well, welcome, Josh, to the podcast today. It really is an honor to have you with us. Oh, and it's my honor. really is. You wrote a book called A Preach Well Church, How Churches Can Stop Burning Out Pastors. And if the title doesn't grab a pastor's attention, then hopefully the subtitle will. Because, exactly. yeah, we want to know how can our church not contribute to our burnout, but help us stop the burnout. Yes. I'm reading a lot about burnout lately uh, on a recent episode with Sean Nemechek. He wrote yes. an entire book on pastoral burnout and did a great job on that. There are multiple sources of burnout. What is the source of burnout that you identify in this book? And how do you begin the process of us uh, addressing it better? Specifically in my book, I actually mentioned that there is a formula in particular for pastoral burnout. And it's it's a conglomeration of three things coming together. Number one, unbiblical, unrealistic expectations from church members themselves. They've just inherited an understanding of what the pastorate is, and that may be biblical, that may not be biblical. Number mm-hmm. two, the lack of perspective from the pastor about what he's supposed to be doing. I mean, quite frankly, it's okay. I get it. Sometimes I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, quite (laughs) frankly, right? Uh, But we have to have a biblical conviction about what God is calling us specifically to do in our local church and assert our uniqueness as pastors. Then number three is a very vocal, critical congregation. So Mm. if you put those three things together, a church that just, quite frankly, may or may not know better about what the pastor is supposed to be doing, a pastor who either is ignorant of it himself or refuses to kind of confront the issue head on, to teach and preach about what a pastor's supposed to be doing. And then if you add in a critical congregation, you know, they do not mind speaking their piece in our context, you know, business meetings and things like that, with gentleness and respect, that pastor is not going to make it long, at least at that particular church. And if you have enough of them, uh, he'll really consider resigning from ministry altogether. Those are the things that yeah. I would specifically say. There's a there's a plethora of oh, other yeah. stressors, but 
those three are the trifecta in my opinion. Yeah, oh, no, I agree. I don't know that I don't know that anybody's more clearly defined the heart of the primary stressors of a pastor's walk than that. We have unrealistic expectations. The congregation has unrealistic expectations and just the biblical expectations themselves are enough stress without adding ones that we don't have. You got it. Yeah. And then because of those unrealistic expectations, then the criticism becomes incorrect and improper because it's based on unbiblical expectations. So the whole thing, just each piece just adds to the stress. Yeah. Yeah. You can just see the downward spiral on the whole thing. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a huge thing. So you say, and I'm going to walk through it because I've read the book and I really encourage people to get the book, a preach well church. It's quite short. It is easy to read, but it's got a lot of real, real treasures on, on just about every page. Uh, You say early on, good stewardship of a pastor's time and energy should not be measured by what they do, but by what they focus on. So what is it that we should be focusing on and how does that change our stress level? A couple of things. Number one, I specifically wrote the book to be given to lay members of churches. It's meant to be brief. It's meant to just be a punch, you know, just bam, a jab to what I think a pastor just desperately needs them to hear. Now, the way I think of it, most things that a pastor does are good biblical things, okay? There's a plethora of good tasks and responsibilities that a pastor can do. What I argue in my book is that the Bible puts a premium particularly on two pastoral duties, uh, the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer that that is our unique place and responsibility within the body of Christ. I am not arguing that the pastor shouldn't do anything else. The analogy I try to set is think of like a solar system with planets orbiting the sun. I'm arguing from the Bible that the sun is primarily preaching and praying, leading your church in those two types of ministries. And every other place, thing, good thing that you would do as a pastor— orbits around those things. They derive their position from the gravity of those two immense responsibilities. And so it'll vary week to week, but Carl, you know, Sunday cometh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you don't have to wonder if you're going to get up in the, into the pulpit and feed the sheep. I mean, that is a right. chief responsibility. And where I derive this from, of course, the, the significant passages is Acts chapter 6, where you have the apostles. I kind of lovingly joke. I say, could you imagine, I'm from a Baptist denomination, stepping up into a pulpit and telling them, hey, it would not be right for us to serve tables for widows. Most Baptist ministers would be fired right there on the spot for even suggesting <laughs> otherwise, right? They recognize we're here to assert our unique calling of proclaiming the gospel to the church and to lead the church in prayer. And so they have other well-qualified men to oversee uh, this ministry. And we think it's the kernel of the deacon ministry that begins there. And then, of course, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, I find it absolutely stunning. You have this incredible last-ditch effort on the Apostle Paul to drum home for the pastor what is it that you got to make the preeminence in your ministry? And he starts with these incredible five intensifying modifiers, you know, uh, knowing uh, I charge you in light of God, his son, his coming, his appearing, you know, he keeps listening to them. Preach the word 
in season, out of season. And I, I tell my people, that means there's no good time not to preach the word. Those are the plain biblical responsibilities of the pastorate. And then what I'm finding in my own research, and, and this is what I'm saying, you go look at the studies and you go talk to the people. Carl, I haven't found a man yet who says he's burned out from preaching and praying. It's not those things. Yeah. A man that tends to have those as the priority of his ministries, they serve as a barrier to burnout. It's when he invests his time, energy, and resources in the other secondary type planetary things that try to become the sun that kind of makes this biblically imbalanced. It just can't happen. And so that's why I say the pastor has many good tasks ahead of him, but he has to put a premium on those two things with his time, energy, and resources. And what you're finding is if you do it the biblical way, it's a barrier to burnout. Until you said that, it never occurred to me. Yeah, it's kind of like the old trope of I've never had somebody on their deathbed say they wish they'd spent more time in the office. So it's kind of like I've never heard anybody complain about burnout saying that it's from preaching and praying. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I haven't met the guy that goes, I burned out yeah. because of the pulpit and I burned out on my knees. Yeah, yeah. That's go go that, find yeah, them. If you can find one of them, yeah, I'll, I'm happy no. to rewrite the book. That's really true. Now, on, on the preaching thing, let me ask you questions. That, um, my guess is that some people are thinking right now, so I'm going to try to get get to their questions before they come in the comments. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Preempt them. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how do we, preaching and praying, and the passages you mentioned, absolutely, the scripture absolutely gives a priority to those for the pastoral role. How do we avoid the whole, especially when it comes to preaching, the whole performanceism thing, yeah. where some people all they do is preach, and the whole thing is about me being on stage and me promoting this this oratory and neglecting the other parts of discipleship. Talk with us through that because that is a problem all of us have seen, correct? And many of us have experienced in our own lives. So you can't reduce pastoring just to preaching, and you can't encompass all of preaching in pastoring. You can't have one without the other. I think God purposely wedded them together. In fact, you can almost argue that with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11, 12, God gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some would say shepherd hyphen teachers. They almost kind of right. works that way. So the shepherding responsibility of the church, the oversight of souls, is of course married to the feeding of the sheep, right? The things that I would tell people is, in my mind, I separate in the Bible what I would consider single solo responsibilities and shared responsibilities. Okay. One of the things that I would say is we as pastors have a unique special solo responsibility to lead the church, to lead the church in the ministry of teaching and praying. We're not the exclusive ministers of the word or the exclusive prayers. Uh, heaven knows we want the whole church participating in teaching and praying. We're, we believe in priesthood of believers, right? Mm -hmm. The yeah. part that I want to acknowledge is take almost every other good thing a pastor does. And what you'll find, though, is your flock is called to do those same things. So Matthew 25, to visit and aid those who are sick and in distress. That's not the righteousness of a pastor. That's the righteousness of Jesus's sheep. Mm. That's every man, woman, and child who claims to know Christ. They visit the widows and the orphans, right? In Matthew 28, 
Jesus is speaking to the entirety of the disciples. You go, you tell, you baptize, you make disciples, right? And so all I'm trying to say is you'll notice this. I did this in the study. When you see pastors who become the primary visitors in their congregation or the primary uh, disciple makers in the sense of almost to the exclusion that the pastor does that over and above praying and preaching, he heads toward burnout. All I'm telling a pastor to do is not that you should never do those things. You should simply be setting an example for your congregation to follow. And I mean, every member of your church. And I think that's a completely distinct reality for a lot of churches, meaning you expect me to go visit the sick like you do. And I would go, yes, absolutely, 100%. And it's not just my expectation. Go read King Jesus at judgment in Matthew 25. That's to every righteous person. When it comes to discipleship, yes, I want to disciple. But if I'm the only one responsible for discipling every new believer in our church, that's a problem. The saints are equipped to do ministry. And so what I would say is we have to assert our uniqueness. And sometimes this isn't the church's fault, Carl. We fail to equip saints for ministry, delegate ministry. We think we have to dominate it, control it. We somehow think oversight means I'm the only one that does it. That's not biblical oversight. And quite frankly, if we believe in the priesthood of the believers, and we believe that God has sovereignly, by his Holy Spirit, equipped every real repentant believer with the spiritual gift, it's no trite, romantic piece of truth. It's the real deal that every believer has a ministry for your particular local church, no matter how small, how big. And so I think there's a lot of times pastors are filling in the gaps for people that the Holy Spirit has equipped with a spiritual gift to go do, let them do it. It would alleviate a lot of the burdens off of pastoral ministry. I think you quote John Stott at one point in the book where you, you talk about how we need to delegate. And then you say, John Stott actually suggests that delegate is the wrong word. And he says, we should use the word partnership. partnership. We should partner with the congregation. Because yes. if you take a look at Acts 6, as you mentioned earlier, they didn't say that preaching and praying is more important than caring mm-hmm. for the widows. They said that's something that can be done by others. Let's designate godly people who can do that so that we can do the unique thing that we're called to do. Called to do. And in doing so, the mm-hmm. congregation gets equipped to do ministry and the people who have needs, their needs are actually met better because there's more people meeting those needs. And heaven forbid, we as pastors acknowledge, I'll be the first one. There are men in my church who are better gifted in pastoral care than I am as the pastor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it just is. God has given other gifts. And I, yeah. I think we feel a pressure like I have to be the pinnacle of spiritual gifting. No, the body of Christ has to do this. It's almost a kind of an anemic ecclesiology in some ways that's led to this type of, of misunderstanding with what the responsibilities of the pastor yeah. is. But, the church is empowered by the spirit. Wow. Let them yeah. go. And they're going to yeah. make mistakes. We do too. It's okay. Yeah. We have grace yeah. for that. And you're so right. I love that passage where in Acts 6, they could have just looked at those widows and said, you know what? That's just a material need. That's secondary. We The gospel is more important. The apostles didn't say that. And you're no. so right to point that out going, no, this is an essential ministry. It's best that we find someone better equipped to do it. Yeah. So as we're looking at that, then you talk about 
how the stress we, we we mentioned it earlier how the stress that comes upon us from unbiblical expectations but then you you do something that i'd never seen before you talk about there's good stress and bad stress and in fact you give it terminology that i assume comes from somewhere else and you didn't make these words up obviously you didn't make one of the words up because i've heard it before but you say good stress is actually called u stress e-u-s stress and bad stress is what we know as distress Talk to us about the differences between those two types of stress, because that's not something I'd ever heard of before. Well, you may tell you where it came from for me. I mean, first of all, yeah, those are just technical terms. I didn't make those names up. You stressed this. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. Right. But our connotation is, oh, stress, that's all bad. There's no such thing as any good stress. And this is not true. You have to remember, I think it's in 2 Corinthians when the Apostle Paul begins to, you know, like a madman, brag on his resume. And it's just one hardship after the other, right? I mean, right. I've been yeah. lost. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's terrifying, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And at the end, Carl, this encouraged me, encourages me. He says, and then not to mention the anxiety I have for the churches. <laughs> yeah. Right. He said, I have a daily pressure, a daily concern just for the well-being of the church. Now, nobody is saying to Paul, how dare you be stressed about the church? (laughs) Do you you not trust God? Is he not sovereign? No, we know that his stress comes from a place of love. It's a concern. So I would try to tell people, I am not advocating that the pastor should have no stress. That's insanity. How would you even do this job? I never forget talking to my dad one time. He's one of my greatest mentors. And I was driving home and I was calling dad and I was upset about this family in our church. And I just told him, I said, dad, I wish I didn't care about this. And he said, son, you're a pastor. And that was it. It was just like, <laughs> like, what did you think, man? You are going to care. Mm-hmm. You can't switch that off. So th- the question becomes, it's what we're caring about. And then number two, what I would argue probably even more is it's the lack of mutual concern between pastors and members. You almost mm. have this vision that he's the caregiver and we're all the ones in the hospital. And it's like, that's, that's not the vision of the church. We, we care for one another. We care for one another. It's a mutual anxiety that we have for one another. And that's a good thing. I mean, think about Galatians. What's it say? We bear one another's burdens. It's not wrong to have a burden. Pastors, it's not wrong to have a burden. Members, it's not wrong to have a burden. What I would say is, but please know, bearing one another burdens isn't me as a member and my pastor bearing the burden. It's me and my neighbor my fellow Mm. believer. And you wouldn't believe, I mean, you know this, you're a pastor. How many times, I never forget being an associate pastor. I'd go to make a visit at my last church and I'd turn to the bedside table and be like, well, where's the pastor at? And I'm sitting there going like, well, I'm a pastor, (laughs) but it it wasn't the senior guy, you know what I mean? And, uh, And it's like, why, how is my care somehow second class? This is true, genuine love that I'm showing you Mm -hmm. here. Yeah. And it's weird that we don't even kind of see it that way from other members. We don't let other yeah. members care for us that way. And so I think stress is essential to the pastor. Show me a man that isn't stressed at all. I think there'd be something wrong with them. But it's the things that most of the time we're stressed about things that ultimately are unbiblical. They're not due to, like I said, you show me the man that burns out because of preaching and praying and it just doesn't exist. And then or it's an inordinate burden bearing that the pastor is doing. Burnout, all at the end of the day, which I find amazing, 
it was just in 2019, burnout was included as a diagnosis in the World Health Organization's, you know, diagnostic. Recent, work. it's crazy to think of that. Yeah. Yeah, that crazy. But the, also yeah. it shows you how prevalent it is that it even had to be like acknowledged. But if yeah. you really get down to it, it's in Josh's layman terms. And of course, I like alliteration. I'm a preacher. It's emotional exhaustion and job jadedness. And it usually happens in the context of people work where you're face-to-face with people's burdens and hurts and needs. And and it just becomes overwhelming. A a pastor can only carry so much of the load. I put it in the book and I'll I'll hush so we can do the next thing, but it's, I think what most people are expecting out of a pastor that they should expect out of a church. People don't need a pastor as much as they need what's a biblical church. And when you see that, you're like, man, one man can't be the church. You're like, exactly. But here's the thing, though. As hard as it is for us as pastors to make that shift where we recognize that it shouldn't all be on our shoulders, where we lay aside the guilt or shame that we feel Mm -hmm. by not being there personally, even though we know that other people are doing that job and doing it well and caring for each other, as hard as it is for us to retrain ourselves to a more biblical understanding of a shared responsibility, Let's lay that aside for a second. How do we bring the congregation along for that? Because that, in a lot of situations, is even harder than convincing the pastor that that's a more biblical model to have shared responsibility. So what are some tips you might have for pastors about how to begin to retrain and re-disciple, perhaps, their congregation to recognize this? Yeah. What you just said is re-discipleship, 100%. And what I would say is, if anybody studies discipleship, you realize, well, this isn't going to happen in three months, Tom. Yeah. (laughs) You can't expect, I mean, you can't expect a congregation. I've got people in my church who have been in my church all of their lives, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And sometimes this, what I'm talking about is news to them. First of all, I have to have grace for them just to begin with going, as long as they'll listen to me right now, I consider that a win. Just to li- they don't even have to agree right now, but just going, Pastor, I'll sit down and, and hear hear you out. But to me, where I think what a pastor has to do, honestly, it's really going to come down to a couple of, of just movers and shakers. If you're in a Baptist church like me, there's usually about three groups that you really need to make sure understand these concepts. Deacons have to understand it. Personnel type people have to understand it and finance type people. I've tried to tell people if, if I could only just get my book into the hands of those three groups, I'd be happy uh, because all it takes is a few influential pastoral advocates sitting in that room to offer up a vocal different perspective based in biblical you know truth. And so uh, I would tell a pastor first, you know, you need, don't take for granted that your deacons understand what's happening in Acts chapter six, verses one through eight, right? That sounds silly, but it's the truth. Go talk over those, teach the Bible to them. And so I think it starts with things like that. I I know one of the ways that I teach this to my congregation, especially when anytime we ordain a deacon, I go back over, this is exactly what a, a deacon's supposed to be doing. I tell them the deacon serves me by serving the church. That's what a deacon does. And so you, they have to understand that, that whole thing. So it starts with just discipling and teaching your people. But all it really takes is a kind of a vocal person who will be a pastoral advocate really in those three areas. And I think once you understand that, it's doable. 
Because if you think, oh man, I've got to get everybody on the exact same page ASAP about what my job is, that's just impossible. That's not based in reality. Uh, but you can have a few good pastoral advocates in places of position. And I don't mean yes men. I talk about it in my book. I think they should be able to bring criticisms to you, but that can be a vocal advocate for you in places of influence in the church. To get key people in those three particular areas, that makes a lot of sense. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. I want to walk through, we've been talking basically large, big picture philosophical shifts uh, so far, and that's yes. how the, the book begins to re reframe things. But then you really get to some really practical things. So I want to get to a handful of these really practical things. You write about the importance of planning sermons in reducing yeah. stress. So yes. talk about how planning our sermons is such a stretch because everything you wrote about it, I went, yep, 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 yep. I've experienced all of that when I started planning my sermons more. So walk us through that. It's actually simple because people think, oh, if I plan sermons, that'll help me with the burden of preaching. Planning sermons has nothing to do with preaching. It really doesn't. I mean, I mean this with general respect. It's this concept going, all right, Sunday's always going to come. I mean, I just don't see how a pastor gets out of the regular teaching of God's word. But what comes and goes, right? Those who are sick in the hospitals, weddings, funerals, and there's no rhyme or reason as to when they'll pop up. Right. So the one, the one thing though that you know is bedrock to your position is preaching. My perspective is try to prepare as far out as you possibly can, because there's going to come the week where, and it happens, guys can tell you, I did three funerals this week. And I still got to get ready for wow. Sunday. I mean, yeah. that stuff happens. Mm, oh, yeah. Where, I mean, it just does. So all I'm, all I'm arguing, and when I say preparing your sermons out, I don't mean full-fledged manuscripts. I'm talking about if usually if you can sit down to six months, some guys go as far as a year, where you're already selecting text, you're already kind of getting commentaries around. The part that I love, and Dr. Didway talks about this at Anderson University, that's where I was at, is when you know what you're going to preach, you're able to live your life 
in light of absorbing illustrations. Yeah. Illustrations yeah. are some of the hardest things to get. But when you yeah. know, like, man, I'm I'm preaching through the book of Romans pretty much till Christmas, and I'm in Romans chapter eight, and he's talking about overcoming suffering through the love and the cross of Jesus. Isn't it wonderful? I could I went to go pick up my kid today from uh, preschool, and I had gotten him a McDonald's nuggets before I picked him up, and he was riding down the road. He said, Dad, you got me nuggets because you love me. And I thought to mm. myself, like he didn't even ask for it. And I thought to myself, it talks about in Romans chapter eight, where God gave us Christ before we even knew him, before we even existed. Isn't that amazing? And he's a good father just because he loves us. And people can relate to those things. But if you're scrambling, you know, doing your Saturday night specials, there's no time for that type of reflection or meditation or anything like that. So it's really two things. One, you're giving yourself a buffer zone for the terrible weeks. They just happen. And then two, you're actually giving your time for sermons or at least ideas for sermons to mature and ripen. You kind of sit in the, the bath with them a while, you know, and marinate. And so I'm an advocate for try to plan out as far as you humanly can go. For me, what I've discovered in just really recent years is if I can reduce urgency, then I can reduce stress substantially. I can still do the same amount of work. I can, the amount of work is not what stresses me out. It's the ticking clock yes. that stresses me out. Yeah. So if it's not urgent, then I'm okay. Like I've got, you know, next week I'm going to be traveling and I'm going to be speaking in three different places, but I have it all laid out already. Every single piece of it is done. So I have no stress about those no three places. Because I know exactly what I'm going to speak. Now, it, the challenge is if you're on the the Saturday night scramble train right now, the challenge is how do, you have to do a little extra work yep. to get the planning in advance. So I'm going to throw out a little ad for my book here. Yeah, please do. <laughs> That's awesome. In, in Small Church Essentials, I call it the three, two, one plan for, for sermon prep. And what I encourage pastors to do, if you haven't been planning yet, and it's always Saturday night scramble, start here, spend one hour a week thinking three months ahead. Oh, that's good. Spend one hour a week thinking two months ahead. Spend one hour a week thinking one month ahead. Mm -hmm. And you can do this while you're commuting to your bivocational job. Yep. Get up a little bit early in the morning. We're talking three hours a week, Yep. but one hour is committed to what am I going to be doing three months ahead? What am I going to be doing two months ahead? What will I be doing one month ahead? You start on that. And after you've been doing it for three or four months, that means by the time you get to what am I doing next month, you've already been thinking about it for two or three months. So by the time you actually sit down to write it, the stuff is all there. It's just a matter of organizing at that point. And if you do that, that's three hours per week times 52, well, 50 weeks, we'll give you two weeks off times yeah. 50 weeks. That's 150 hours per year of planning your schedule ahead of time. Mm -hmm. That's like taking almost a full month off to do sermon prep. Yes. Th that plan's way better than the one I suggest. Do what he just said. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but it gets you to where what it gets people to where what you're talking about, because to have to reduce that urgency, to be able to look ahead six months and so on, which I think is really important as well. This is step number one. So if you're on Saturday night scramble, spend one hour doing thinking three months ahead, one hour thinking two mm -hmm. months ahead, one hour thinking one month ahead, and you'll begin the process and it will take a while. It'll take you 
three, four, five, six months before this becomes a regular pattern in your life and you start noticing the significant stress reduction of it. So that's my that's little good. throw in ad for my stuff there. But that's let's get good. back to your that's so good. Let's get back to your practical stuff. You list three ways that churches can help pastors reduce their stress. I'm just going to throw each one out at you one at a time. Uh, Well, let me do all three and then you can comment on them in any order you want to. You say it's important for the congregation to understand the pastor's priorities, Mm -hmm. to know and honor the pastor's schedule, including days off, and to address any disagreements immediately, gently, and respectfully. Yes. So let's walk through some of those. And how do we begin to disciple our congregations to do that? Well, one, like we talked about kind of already, I think when it comes to understanding the biblical priorities, when I say biblical priorities, I chiefly mean the two areas of the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. And that's going to do a couple of things. One is you're going to have to actually teach the Bible's biblical priorities. You're actually going to have to mm-hmm. inform them. That That's the hard part is you can't kind of complain like, well, they don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Pastor, you're the ones that has to tell them. I wish there was some other way, but Mm -hmm. you do have to tell them that. And I do think it starts with being, you know, starting with your influential leaders, deacons, personnel, finance committee members, those types of people who have a lot of sway in the church, getting them to understand that. The other part, though, is what I would say about when it comes to biblical priorities, and it's going to kind of leak into the next two or three, is, and I know this will be a a really hard shift for some churches, because this is like where that philosophy becomes real practical, is begin to ask your people, if as long as it's not an emergency, to set an appointment when they would like to come meet and talk with you. A lot Mm -hmm. of churches still have a, which is fine, there's nothing wrong with this. The, hey, I'm just going to drop by. My pastor loves me. It doesn't bother him. And a pastor's never going to tell you this, okay? <laughs> this is right. like behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah. It's not that it bothers them, but it takes, when you're doing sermon prep, it takes long hours even of just uninterrupted thought. I mean, that's what yep. we're talking about with the planning is you just got to be able to think, not in bursts of five seconds, five minutes, 10 minutes. You actually yep. need time to meditate. And when somebody's always bouncing into the, the office, hey, pastor, what's up? How are you doing today? You want to go grab lunch? We love that. But man, honestly, there's times where it's like, I really, for for the sake of my sanity and my family, I need to get this sermon done right now. Mm -hmm. And so I've just tried to tell them, believe it or not, the ways I've got my congregation trained apart from an emergency. And I understand emergencies happen. If you can let me do my sermon prep, generally Mondays and Tuesdays, I'm an early guy in the week. And then Wednesdays, Thursdays, we'll go get lunch. We'll go do visits. And once you do that, and here's what I found. I, I don't know if you're like me, if someone drops in on me and I'm in the middle of thought about this, the whole time I'm with them, I'm thinking, I got to finish that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You're not present. But You're when not. I know, Hey, I've got a lunch meeting with Danny on Wednesday. I'm all in on Danny. I'm not worried mm-hmm. about what all else is. And so believe it or not, those are like little small tokens that you can train your congregation as to the importance of biblical preaching. And then the other thing, saints, you actually, it sounds shocking. But like, and I'm old school when it comes to like this, on Wednesday nights, we have prayer meeting and we pray for the majority of the time. And I think one of the things that happens is I think people think, well, how hard is prayer? And I know prayer can be brief and silent, but the type of prayer ministry that I envision, they don't realize how much it ought to dominate our ministry. And sometimes until you begin taking your people and praying with them for almost an hour, 
right? Then they begin to say like, oh, this guy's not messing. If he's in yeah. his study and he's on his knees, it's not something quaint and trite. This is spiritual warfare. And then there's a different appreciation. Some people, and I don't, I thank God he hears us in a moment, you know, just like that, like a thought. But there's something to be said when Jesus goes away and spends a night in prayer. Yeah. That's the type of ministry we're called to. And I think some people, they read about it. They're like, is he really doing that? And it's like, that's actually what we're supposed to be doing. So I think it's just a shock. Um, what yeah. was your other two? I think it was, I think I had, they kind of all blend no, together for me. Yeah, no, I think you addressed, I, I think you addressed the ent- entire thing really yeah. well. In fact, the point on prayer there, you actually write that clergy who pray frequently actually have better vitality as well as general, better general mental health scores. Yes. So prayer actually helps clinically with mental health. That's not the primary reason we pray, of course, but right. here's what I want to do. I want to get into that in the bonus material. So okay. if you're listening right now and you're not a subscriber or a donor, the, the way you get all the bonus material is you can either go to carlvaders.com slash uh, support and you can become a Patreon supporter and then you'll get all this stuff. In fact, you usually get it earlier than everybody else. Or if you want to get it for free, you can subscribe to the free newsletter, carlvaders.com slash subscribe. You'll get our free Friday newsletter. And every time there will be the link to get you to the bonus material that is only available for supporters and subscribers. So in the bonus material with Josh, we're going to talk about how prayer helps reduce ministry stress. Again, Reducing ministry stress is not the reason we pray, but it happens to be a wonderful little side benefit that we'll talk about a little bit. But before we get into the lightning round, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about a really important issue. You write about the rhythms of input and output of energy highs and energy lows. And it's one of the things that I learned far later in ministry than I wish I had, the idea of understanding the rhythms of input and output of energy, the need for rest, that it's not weakness to plan to rest after times of high energy output. Walk us through some of the practical aspects of that, because if you are constantly worn out just by your schedule, this next five minutes might be the most important part of the podcast for you. Walk us through some of that, Josh. One of my favorite things when I was doing all this research was research by Archibald Art. I think he's passed away now, but he used to be one of the psychology professors at Fuller Seminary. And in his book, Unmasking Male Depression, he kind of almost throws this away, but I'm like, I seized on it when I was reading through it, was pastors are adrenaline junkies, essentially. And if you begin Mm -hmm. to think about it, this is really, really good. He talks about like, first of all, public speaking is terrifying to most people in general. But let's just say that's not a big problem for you, pastor. You've got this. You've nailed this. Everybody knows on Sunday, though, you generally try to bring your A game, whether that's in the pulpit, whether that's shaking hands, it's seeing people. This is the one opportunity you have to really, at least vocally, invest in your people. And so whether you realize it or not, you are jacked up. (laughs) it's, It's a part of it. And then I think every pastor knows this. Mondays are some of the most depressing days on the planet. Uh, I jokingly, I refer to them as the holy hangover. That's what it is. It's like (laughs) all of that energy is gone. I have a pounding headache. I'm usually really loud. So my chest is hurting from preaching yesterday. Mm -hmm. And the part that I'm finding is, I wish it's almost like this. People think like Monday is this like spiritual warfare, you know, demonic strongholds. And it's like, actually, this is just the rhythm of your body. And it's nothing more 
and it's nothing less. Don't impute upon that feeling. God's spirit has left me. <laughs> the church is abysmal. I need to go look for another job. I mean, you see what I'm, because in that moment of depression, this he calls it post-adrenaline depression, God has made our bodies to where they are subject to rest. You have to have low arousal activities. You can't just push through it. You can't just keep going. And so to give yourself grace, I'm still an advocate, and Archibald Hart talks about this, where he suggests going in on Monday, doing low arousal activities, do your low maintenance administrative type stuff, no heavy lifting, you know, and then sometime later in the week when you're well, take that day off to spend with your family. Take that day off to go and enjoy God's creation. And I think it's imperative, Spurgeon and others, the pastor has to have his own Sabbath set apart from Sundays, preferably set apart from Saturdays, in my opinion, where he's taking a day off where most of the rest of his congregation, they're probably working uh, with gentleness and respect. I think that's really practical. And I would tell people, I'm not against sabbaticals, not against sabbaticals. If your church wants to grant you one, take it and run. But long-term wise, you are better off teaching your church to give you one day a week where you turn off your cell phone. You're nowhere in sight. And they know that if a need arises, apart from, I mean, catastrophic death, they're to call either a deacon, a staff person, another lay leader so that you try to disconnect as humanly possible and actually experience Sabbath. I think it was Spurgeon that said, the reason we sleep is because we're not God. <laughs> Just We're not. We can't be on call 24-7. We're not omnipotent. We're not omnipresent. And you can step away. It really is true. I just want people to understand is all of that feeling of being low, and that's actually normal. Yeah. It's like, that's okay. You should feel that way. I would tell a guy who goes, oh, man, I, on Mondays, I feel the best I ever felt. I'm like, did you even preach? Were you even around your people? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I and I fully agree. I took a sabbatical this summer for the first time ever. I highly recommend it to others. They can go back to episode 55 to hear the results of that. But bottom line, a Sabbath is a command. Sabbatical is not. Amen. So. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's right. Sabbath so is. yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a command that applies to us as pastors as well. And the more, it, sometimes what we call sabbatical is just simply, you know, flaming out and needing to get away and, and a stress break. But if you take the regular Sabbath and then you get to have the bonus of a sabbatical and sabbatical yeah. is really a bonus if you get to do so. And I highly recommend doing it, but it is a bonus. It is not a command. And Sabbath is a command that was given, as the Bible says, for our good. Our good. Can I add one thing real quick? Too? Yeah. And the reason why Archibald was advocating taking, because I know a lot of pastors, they take Monday off because they feel so terrible. Mm -hmm. His point was saying, don't do that because then you basically are giving your emotional table scraps to any type of families or even yeah. yourself on those days. It's okay to go like, man, church, y'all got to take one for the team on Monday. I'm going to do the best with what I've got. Yeah. But just be gracious with me. And, and people yeah. understand. Yeah. Fully agreed. Fully agreed. Well, let's get to the lightning round questions and see how well you do with these, Josh. All right. I'll try the best I can. Question number one, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years and how have you adapted to it? COVID, I'm still adapting. Uh, 
it would be. <laughs> I read your article the other day. You nailed it. The frequency of attendance has completely changed. I would say my pull is almost about the same, but the frequency. Ironically, though, like in our instance, our volunteerism is up and our giving's up, which is kind of a, yep. a weird thing. So like those things yep. have gotten stronger. What you're saying is surprisingly typical. This is the first time I've been in pastoral ministry over 40 years. My father, my grandfather were pastors. So I've got like a hundred years worth of pastoral experience going. And this is the first time in anybody's uh, recognition and awareness that the attendance has gone down while volunteerism and giving has typically gone up. It's completely inside out. Yeah. When you said uh, adapting to it, like I'm still trying to understand it. I mean, I really don't Mm -hmm. quite understand. I see it. I see it in my own anecdotal evidence, but then I read about it. I'm like, it's happening here too. The other thing for us, and I can't, I would assume it's happening in other places was, so I'm a young, I'm 35. I've been here since I was 29. I'm Lord willing. I'd love to be at my church for the long haul. Like if I could do it, I'd do it. I just always envisioned prior to COVID that I'll have 20 years with the elder statesmen of the church before the batons pass to leaders that come up in under my ministry. COVID, it was like a 10 month span where some of my older states were going, I physically cannot do this. And it's those guys' turn. Well, what about our 20 year transition, (laughs) you know, plan? Like, nope, that's not going to work right now. And those guys have been awesome. My new guys have, but, when you're making decisions and you're kind of your people that have the history of the church, they're not in the room any longer. They're not. And that's just been a, a unique advantage and disadvantage. So I have fresh perspective, but you in a historic church like mine, you want to know what happened the last 50 years when you're making decisions. And that was, that was a unique thing that it just didn't dawn on me till I was sitting in the room and realized in one year, my composition of leadership changed. Just like that. A shift that usually takes about a decade and about a year and a half. So yeah, yeah, extraordinary. So number two, what free resource like an app or a website has helped you lately that you'd recommend for small church ministry? I don't want to get in trouble on how to say this without just being brief. I love the chat GPT and all the AI stuff. Uh I'll tell anybody like use it. I think it's great. I'm one of those ones especially when it comes to sermons, I manuscript out every word. And I know I have a cutoff line where I'm like about 2,400. If I get over 2,400 words, my congregation's in trouble. They're not going to eat lunch that day. Uh, And so (laughs) one of the things that I love is I can send it through there and be like, show me areas where I can reduce, keep the idea, but reduce the words. I love that. And so I use it for things like that. I'm still a big fan of the Bible app. I use the events Thing. I don't know if you've seen that where your pastor can go in and put his scripture and references. Right. Uh, yeah. And the reason is that the U version? Is that the U version by lap? Yeah. yeah. And the reason why I'm saying we're still kind of old school, we don't do the screens and all that stuff, but my people mm-hmm. who are tech, they love that and it's absolutely free. And then the third one that I, would, I was telling people is I love the Breeze church management system stuff. It's like 50 bucks a month. It's great for small churches. It's a database. You can do online giving through there. You can do emails through there, text messages through there. It's completely worth the 50 bucks for me. And oh, okay. Yeah. I would tell people those. I heard about that. Yeah. Breeze. I think it's CHMS. It's church management systems. It's great. Okay. Great. Yeah. And yeah, on the AI, because there's there's all kinds of, yeah. the sky is falling. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Concerning yes. AI. 
it's simply the next step in technology. And no, neither Josh nor I are recommending that you have a computer write your sermon for you. That's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. It is simply an, an assistant, just like you might hand your manuscript off to an editor who would say, Hey, I would cut this and cut this and cut this. If that can be done electronically, why not? If you can do research by asking it, Hey, can you look up these particular subjects for me? And then Mm -hmm. you decide what goes in and what doesn't go in. And I, I think it's going to take maybe longer than usual for people to be comfortable with AI simply because it is such a big next step. It's, it's the logical next step to what we've been doing with computers, but it's such a change. And because there's been all of these stories and movies about robots taking over the planet, this is the first time where it's really felt like that in some Uh way. (laughs) The two things that I've tried to tell people though, because it's a fear, there's a fear associated Mm -hmm. with it. Number one, if you've actually just go in there, and like I said, I'm preaching in Romans 8, and if you were to go in there and be like, write me a sermon on Romans 8, okay? I've tried to tell people that if you go and preach that and your congregation doesn't know something's up, you're one of the worst preachers on the planet. Okay? I, just, <laughs> I just, because to me, every time I've played with stuff like that, it, to me, it comes off like a cheap imitation of a sermon that I would see on SNL. You know what I'm saying? Like, go. this is yep. a Saturday Night Live skit. But it's phenomenal to do what the things you're talking about going, hey, I just need some ideas about this subject and just rattle them off. And you still do the discernment work. And it really is just more of an assistant. And so I would tell people, like, you need to check it out. Don't It ain't going to hurt. Try it one or two times. And if you think it's garbage, uh, go away. But for me, especially as wordy as I am, I love that little feature that it can just go like, here's a here's a simpler way to say that. And uh, that's phenomenal. A research and editing assistant, especially for those of us in smaller congregations that don't have people that we can pay to do that. So that's really helpful. Yeah. Number three, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? It would be two or three things. Clayton King, he's an evangelist here in the South. I was a part of his evangelist network. We sit down thinking, here's a bunch of young guys figuring out how to book us some gigs. We found a guy, you know, Mm -hmm. he's going to get us on the platform. He sat us down. He says, I got two things to tell you. Number one, if you lose your health, you lose your ministry. Number two, you can do ministry with a wife, but you can't do ministry against one. And that was it. <laughs> it was just like, and he's like, those are the first two steps to having an evangelistic ministry. And and then the older I get, the more I go, he's right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I would yeah. tell everybody. Well, and, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, and if you were, and if you take a look biblically at the requirements for ministry, it's all about those things too. Take care of your household. Take care of yourself. Take have some self discipline. It's it's not about leadership. It's not about management. It's not about oratory. Nope. It's about character and it's about family. So that's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, but it's just the foundation. And I would, yeah. I go back every time going those. And then one of the things my pastor growing up, as soon as I announced the call to ministry, he looked at me. He said, "Now, Josh." This is the best calling because of the people, and it's the worst calling because of the people. And that that is that's still true. Like mm-hmm. the best part in my ministry is because of people, and yep. the worst part in my ministry is because of people, and that's okay. Yep, there we go. All righty, what's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? All right. Oh, I can see you all. Oh, okay, for those because this is audio, yeah. you just face palmed, so this should be interesting. Yeah. So, well, and I believe it or not, it wasn't me. I don't think I had anything to do with it. When I was the associate pastor at Beaverdam, and I, I don't say this mean, it's just one of those ones that it just cracks me up. I was in the back 
with the audio visual guy. I was running the visual. He was running the audio. And we had a elder lady in our church who was subbing in, leading the singing that day. And she had a pacemaker. And have you ever just been in a church where everything's going perfectly? And all of a sudden the sound system just booms. I mean, just to this day, I still don't know why it happened. When it hit, her name was Catherine. Catherine fell out like over. And we thought, oh my goodness, I think we just killed Catherine. (laughs) But the part that still to this day, when she fell over, her dress came up just above her knees. Now I'm in a conservative Baptist church. You know what I mean? Right. And there was a choir behind her. And to this day, this is what gets me. Linda gets up from the choir, doesn't check her pulse, doesn't check to see if this woman's sleeping. <laughs> took her dress and pulled it all the way down back over her ankles. <laughs> right? You see what I'm saying? And then and returned to the saying? seat. And just returned to the oh, seat. Oh, my God. And didn't oh, even check her after them. that. That was them. all she did. That oh was God. all she did. And I, swear, and I was joking <laughs> people. I said, Catherine could have died that day. But as long wow. as she died modestly, we were okay with it. <laughs> wow. Okay. Catherine was fine. Her, her husband, though, was a jokester. And every now and then he he was like, you remember that C I think he called it the CDFO when Catherine Dunn fell out. And it's one of my favorite memories. That stuff sneaks up onto me while I'm in important meetings and cracks me up. Oh, that is hilarious. Wow. Yeah. Hey, Josh, that, that's a great way to conclude it here. A reminder to everybody, get Josh's book, A Preach Well Church, How Churches Can Stop Burning Out Pastors. And if people want to find you online to follow up on anything, how can they do that? I have a website, preachwell.com, preachwell.com. And then I'm a big, uh, I'm a Facebook guy. It's like Josh Out Loud. And I post stupid memes and things like that. So if you okay. if you want serious content, preachwell.com. If you don't mind goofing off, go find me on Facebook. All right. And we'll put links to all the stuff he's mentioned in the show notes, of course. And we, we are now going to go into our bonus material. And again, if you want any of the bonus material, carlbaders.com slash support or carlbaders.com slash subscribe. We're going to talk for five to 10 minutes on how prayer helps reduce ministry stress. But Josh, thanks so much for being with us today. Such great practical advice for pastors that I know is going to help and bless them. My honor. Thank you. Well, Josh's take on the growing issue of ministry stress is so simple, but it's not simplistic at all, and I really believe it's biblically based. So some of my takeaways from this interview include this. First, how good stewardship of a pastor's time and energy should not be measured by what they do, well, what we do, but by what we focus on, and that that focus biblically should be preaching and prayer. Second takeaway, that focusing on prayer and preaching does not and should never mean neglecting the other hands-on aspects of pastoral care. Third, that discipling, or what Josh and I called re-discipling the congregation to take on most of the aspects of pastoral care is a blessing, not just for the pastor, but for the church members who are serving each other and for the church members who are being served by other church members. It'll take some retraining, some re-discipling to get there, but in the long run, it's going to be great for everybody. And then my fourth takeaway is this, that planning and prioritizing our sermon prep time doesn't just help us be better preachers but it actually reduces the urgency, which is one of the primary stress points for pastors. And it allows us to be a better caregiving pastor as well, because the preaching time has already been done. It's been planned. It's set aside and we're ready for it. 
This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver. It was edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The graphic design is by Solomon Joy. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I hope to talk with you again in the church lobby.